when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. And he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Welcome to the book of Jonah. Well, that's not actually the beginning of Jonah. That's actually Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. Right in the middle of Jonah. So it's not really the beginning, but that's the conclusion that every prophet would hope for. You would think they would want this kind of result. The people turn from their evil ways. But not Jonah. Jonah is like the anti-prophet in some ways. When you think about him, he, he runs the opposite direction when God comes calling. He tries to get as far away from what God wants as possible. He goes all the way to the southern coast of Spain. And you know the story. Many of you know the story. You don't have to come to church to know the story of Jonah. Right? Big storm... Big fish, little prophet swallowed by big fish, right? Big fish unceremoniously deposits little prophet on beach. And God gives him a second chance. Jonah, will you go to Nineveh? And Jonah doesn't jump up and down. Jonah kind of gives in. And he does what prophets do. He goes and he announces judgment. Not with a long-winded sermon, in fact. What he does amounts to about five words in the Hebrew language. And he warns the inhabitants of this Assyrian city with these words. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh? Well, they heed the warning. They do exactly what the prophet told them to do. They, they heed the warning. And that's what every prophet longs for. Except Jonah. So as I read chapter 4 of the book of Jonah, I would invite you just to imagine this unfolding. Just listen to it and imagine what's unfolding with this prophet, with God, and with these people. This is the word of the Lord for us today. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, this turning of the people away from evil. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah says nothing, according to the text. It says, Jonah had gone out and sat down at the place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. 
He wanted to die, and he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm, I'm sorry, I just chuckle when I think about Jonah going, it is. I need to be angry about this plant. I am so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And that ends the book of Jonah. Should I not be concerned with all these people? You're sitting here worrying about a plant that's now inconveniencing you. Should I not be worried about these people? I am Jonah. I am Jonah. And I think if we would admit it, we are tempted to be, sometimes we are tempted to give in to that temptation to be like Jonah. When you read the entire book of Jonah, all four chapters, it is more biographical than prophetic. Though it is considered one of the minor prophets. Unlike the others, though, the primary prophetic word is not in what this prophet says. In fact, there's only one verse in this entire four chapters that's actually considered a prophetic word. So it's not so much the words of the prophet, but rather it's the life of the prophet. It is the lesson we learn from his attitude and his actions toward God and toward others. And this is one thing we learn. This is one way we can be like Jonah. We are like Jonah when we wish God would act the way we want him to. Right? That is Jonah's biggest complaint. God reacts with mercy toward the repentant action of the Ninevites and Jonah sees things differently. This is the message paraphrase of chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah was furious. He lost his temper. He yelled at God. God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen. That's why I ran off to Tarshish. You see, God was not fitting into Jonah's mold. He was, he was not meeting the prophet's expectations Jonah had it all figured out how God should be working in the world. And it was according to Jonah's prescribed categories in the way God should work and how God should treat people and how God should be defending him in Israel. Oftentimes we're left with a question about God's activity in the world. God, why don't you do it my way? Now, we would never say that out loud. But we would think it out loud <laughs> in our minds. This is how Jonah saw everything. There were the good guys and there were the bad guys. And the true God was a good guy God. Jonah and Israel were the good guys and the Ninevites were the bad guys. And they were the ultimate bad guys. So there's the good guy, God, the bad guys, 
And Jonah thinks that God should be on the good guy, good guy, God, God, good guy side. I'll get that out. But Nineveh, I mean, these were the ultimate bad dudes. They were bad. They were wicked. They represented everything that went against the belief system, the values, and the ethics, and the lifestyle of the prophet and the people of Israel. And they were ruthless. In fact, they were so ruthless that in another book in the Bible, in the little minor prophet Nahum, this 8th century Assyrian city is described this way. The city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never, never without victims. They were brutal. And you know who they liked to brutalize? Israel. They were the ultimate bad guys, and they deserved one thing. God, bring down the iron fist. That's according to Jonah. So Jonah thought that God had it all wrong. He was right, and God was wrong. I know we never think that way, right? Well, that's my temptation as well. And maybe yours at times. Because you see, Jonah actually has a point. Jonah has cause to be angry. He knows what these people are capable of. And if we are honest, and we were in Jonah's shoes, we, we may have very well reacted the same way Jonah did. And so when I read Jonah, what Jonah confronts within me is Jonah confronts my own limited capacity. Or maybe better said, sometimes my limited willingness to offer grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Jonah reminds me, as Pamela Scalise says, how hard it is to forgive and to welcome the former enemy into your own safe circle. How hard that is. You know, my friends, I have a great capacity. I have a great capacity to be more like Jonah and less like Jesus. Jonah. Jonah is the person who can sing most robustly, who can preach most eloquently, the person who can explain the gospel most completely and pray most loudly. But he is the one who has it all relegated to his head and not his heart. Because at the same time, in his head, there's a very rational way God should deal with the world. Or those who are not like the prophet, or those who do not see like the prophet sees, that, that God, in a very rational way, should deal with them this way. It's pretty black and white. Fortunately, our God, I guess, is probably irrational. Maybe we should say fortunately when it comes to the way he treats us. But if I'm not careful, if I simply limit connection to God to religious knowledge or church affiliation or, as in Jonah's case, national identity, then I will fail to remember how God has treated me and miss seeing what God is doing in the world, and I, and I will have a great capacity for dismissing people from the grace of God. Which brings me to the second temptation we face when it comes to being like Jonah. We, 
we are tempted to be like Jonah when we try and determine who's in and who's out. And we do that. It may be a social, socioeconomic filter we look through. It, it may be a race or ethnic filter we look through. It may be a political affiliation we look through. It may be a gender issue or lifestyle issue we look through to determine who's in and who's out. If they don't fit the category, they're out. But if they fit the category, they're in. But see, that's, the problem is we run into the problem of God. This has always been a problem with God in this way. God is always inviting people to the religious party that we do not expect to be there or we do not think should be there. Let me give you one Old Testament example. Just one. It says it all. What about Rahab the prostitute in Joshua? Huh? What? How's, how's Rahab the, pro, how's the prostitute the hero? That's what we see. That's, the, that's in Joshua. She's invited to the party of redemption. Ultimately, this is what landed Jesus in hot water all the time. Especially with the religious folks around him time and time again. Why is that? Why did he do that? Over and again. Well, it reminds me of when Jesus took a trip to Samaria. When Jesus went, we find these pretty seemingly innocuous words in John chapter 4. It says this, now Jesus had to go through Samaria. That sounds like Kathleen saying, well, Jeff had to go to the store. Right? That's what it sounds like. Jesus had to go through Samaria. But here's the truth. He did not. On the surface, on the outside, looking in, from the outside perspective, that's the last place Jesus would have to go. Because Jews did not go there for business or for pleasure. They avoided it at all costs. The Samaritans of Jesus' day were like the Ninevites of Jonah's day. They worshipped differently. Their lifestyle was different and contrary to some of the Jewish law. They made life miserable for the Jews. They were the ultimate outsiders. They did not know the hymns. They did not know the language. They did not understand the way the church was supposed to work. They didn't vote right. They didn't look right. They didn't sound right. So you stayed away from them. But J.D. Wall asks a simple question about this. He says, so why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? Because this is what God does. In the eyes of God, there are no deplorables, only wayward sons and daughters. This is what God does. This is what a redemptive God does with a broken world. He does not seek to avoid it. He engages those who live in it. He keeps on seeking and reaching and pursuing his wayward sons and daughters. He moves beyond borders and cultures and ethnicities and races. He smashes barriers and he restores broken lives. And he just keeps bringing grace. Grace upon grace is how Jesus was described. And that's what Jonah missed. 
though Jonah knew this intellectually. Jonah had the right Sunday school answer to the question, what kind of God is the true God? He said this, Jonah chapter 4, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from the sending calamity. That is the answer. It's littered all over the first five books of the Bible. The book of Numbers, you read it all over the Psalms. So this prophet was very aware of that Sunday school answer to that question, what kind of God is this God? He understood that in his mind. He knew that from his religious training from the time he was a child. But his actions showed a narrow view of who qualified for God's grace. The people that he thought qualified for grace, for mercy, for justice, or for salvation had to fit into this narrow view. So I asked myself the question, what skewed Jonah's thinking? What caused him to not connect his belief about God and this compassionate God with his view of others? And then what does this cautionary tale teach us? What does it teach us? Well, I think the first lesson is this. Refuse to focus on a limited view of God's mercy. Last night, I mentioned my prayer. I was praying for the mercy of God upon our people, people who are really struggling, people who are walking through cancer treatments, and people who are um, walking in dark places with family members. I pray for God's mercy. But you know, his, his mercy is so expansive, it's not just intended for his people. It's a big God. Now it's clear that Jonah thought that God's mercy was limited. If any group of people in the Bible did not deserve the mercy of God, it was the Ninevites. They were awful. And yet how deep and how high and how wide and how long is the love of God. And this is what I think. We need to remember, mercy does not give up. God just wouldn't. We'll come back to that. Secondly, what do I learn from this prophet? We need to fight against a fierce nationalism which excludes others. Now, Carol, Kyle Yates, the scholar, points out that an ugly, when he talks about Jonah and the people of Israel, an ugly, narrow, selfish nationalism had developed in their hearts. It had developed. That's how they began to see the world and life. Jonah could only view Nineveh through this nationalistic lens of exclusion, which only allowed him to see an enemy. That's all he saw. And he did not... He did not make room in his thinking for the other who is unlike him to be a point of God's concern and God's redemption. He couldn't see it. These were, these were idol worshipers. They, they worshipped the goddess Ishtar. It was a center for that. But you know what? Jonah became like them. Jonah became an idol worshiper as well. 
his nationalism became his idol in the name of God. Brothers and sisters, that's a prophetic word for you and me today. Let us ask God to help us. Help us look through his redemptive lens in these days. Thirdly, repent of entitlement that places us above others. I mean, don't we learn that from the plant? I love the part about the plant. The plant cracks me up. He had nothing to do with the plant. It was given to him as a gift of comfort, allowing him a perfect view of the revival God had in mind. Very comfortable view. But he could not even see the grace that was extended to him, let alone the grace extended to the other. And that is what this entitled view does. We only see what we should have, or we only see what we don't have. And then we can't join God in what he's doing. Lord Jesus, help me to offer up to you my own sense of entitlement. All of this is why the most appropriate way to end this book of the Bible is with an unresolved question. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, God asks, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals, people who don't really know, don't really fully understand. You know, they're just like you. They have animals too that they're caring for. Should I not care for those people too? Now that's a prophetic word for all of us. It's the question for all of us. It, it pits the narrow and limited perspective of Jonah against the expansive and redemptive heart of God. God has such an overwhelming concern for the Ninevehs of the world. It's what continues to break his heart. And at one point, Jerusalem became like a Nineveh as Jesus himself wept over the city of Jerusalem. But Jonah's limited view and individualized belief of the way God would act prevented him from seeing the heart of God. He even missed the numerous attempts by God to give him grace. The storm, four times in the book of Jonah, it says God provided Jonah something. A fish, a plant, the worm... Thank you, God. And the hot east wind that burned his bald head. Now, it doesn't say he had a bald head, but I'm just thinking this prophet had a bald head. He had, it was hot. And it says his head was hot. And I know what it's like to have a bald head and an east wind that's hot and your head's hot. That's what was going on with this prophet. But four times, the fish, the plant, the worm, the east wind were provided by God. That's what the scripture says. We're gifts of grace to God. Even the second chance, all of it, all of it. What is it saying to us? God refused to give up on Jonah. And he refused to give up on the Ninevites. And look what happens when God refuses to give up. Those sailors, 
those pagan sailors, it says the men greatly feared the Lord. This pagan God-worshipping city, it says that the Ninevites believed God. This ruthless and violent pagan ruler of that city, it says by the decree of the king and his nobles, let everyone call urgently on God, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. This is like reformation taking place in Nineveh. No one, especially Jonah, expected the pagan sailors, the people, and the king to be part of God's redemptive story. And so yes, Jonah wanted God to act as he thought he should. And yes, at times we do. But Jonah helps me remember that my place is not to dictate the ways God works in the world. How he moves in the lives of people. My place is to trust him, to rejoice in what he is doing, to open my heart and my arms to whomever he sends me to and to whoever he sends me. And then join him in welcoming them home to a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You see, this this prophet really asks one question to me. And it's this. Whose God is God anyway? Whose God is he? Well, he is the God for the person you think least deserves it. He is the God for the one who appears to most reject him. He is the God for the one who does not measure up according to your standard. He is the God for the person you most dislike and distrust and disagree with. He is the God for the person most unlike you. He is the God for the one who does not have a clue. He is the God for the person who has lost their way and needs to find their way back home to God. He is even the God for the misguided and hard-hearted like this prophet. And you see, that's really good news because that means you and I qualify too. That's what that means. That he is the God for you and me. He is the God. He is the God for us. You see, this little Bible book is probably the most New Testament book in the prophets. This little Bible book points to the truth that we stand on. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We are part of the whosoever as is every person you'll come in contact with today, this week, and the rest of your life. He is the God who desires to belong to everyone. He is the redemptive God in a broken world. He is our God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to thank you today. We're reminded, Jesus, that you took on our humanity. You took it all on. The good, the bad, and the ugly the joyous and gladsome and celebratory. You took it all on. You took it all on, Lord God, so that you, a redemptive God, could meet us in our broken world. 
Help us to learn the lessons we need to learn from the prophet Jonah as we look at our world. Help us, Lord God, to look for the evidence of the expansive mercy and grace that you pour out. Help us to be avenues of that expansive mercy and grace. And help us, Lord, remember that you are the God who has not given up on us. And Lord, we're going to thank you. Now, as we go forth from this place today, may we join you, the redemptive God, in serving and ministering to and representing you in our broken world. And we'll give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Receive this benediction. And now may we go together in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who came for the whosoever will. And thank you, God, that that is us. Let us go into our world in his name. Amen. God bless you. Our ushers will dismiss you um, from the back, and then we'll have you just go out through the hallway, out to the parking lot. May you enjoy this beautiful day. God bless.